We see plenty of evidence of sin around us. But let's not engage in too much finger-pointing. After all, as the saying goes, when you point one finger, remember that three fingers still point back at yourself. It's not as if only people around us have faults. Measured against the standard of God's law, we have plenty of faults ourselves. Love is the summary of God's law. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor perfectly. In the light of this standard, we fail miserably. Lord's Day 2 leads us to confess this very personally. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Now, where does this inclination to hate God and our neighbor come from? That's an excellent question. Now, let's reflect on the root of our problem. Lord's Day 3 helps us with this. It teaches us to look back to the very beginning of human existence. God created us. Is it his fault that things are such a mess? We can't answer this question on our own. We were not there when God created man. All we can do is go back to Scripture to find out what God, our Creator, says. How were things in the beginning? And this brings us to our theme for this afternoon. Scripture teaches us to look to God in our misery. It reveals, first of all, our glorious beginning, and secondly, our sinful fall, and thirdly, our only hope. Scripture teaches us to look to God in our misery. It reveals our glorious beginning, our sinful fall, and our only hope. In Genesis 1 verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this doesn't mean that Adam and Eve bear a physical resemblance to God. They were created in the image of God. But the point is not physical resemblance. First of all, they, didn't, they don't even look like each other. Scripture makes it clear that there was a difference between male and female. We have a spirit and a body. This makes us different from God. God does not have a spirit. He is spirit. That describes his essence. And because God is spirit, God tells us not to represent him in any shape. In Deuteronomy 4, the verses 15 to 16, we read, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. To understand the meaning of man being created in the image of God, we therefore can't conclude that this has anything to do with what God looks like. 
It may be tempting to do this, since God did upon occasion present himself to man in visible human form. However, the purpose of such special appearances was not to give us an impression of what God looks like. The image of God reflects what God is like and what he does. And the Catechism bases its explanation on this. It homes in on two characteristics of God, righteousness and holiness. And those two words don't exhaust the meaning of what God is like. But they do highlight that God created Adam and Eve to be like him in two ways. Righteousness and holiness are not things you can see when you look at someone. You can only see such characteristics when a person speaks or does something. Words or actions show us what a person is like. And keep this in mind in connection with Adam and Eve being created in the image of God. God is the creator and ruler of the universe. He created Adam and Eve to be like him. He placed them over all of creation. He wanted them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In fulfilling this purpose under God, they were supposed to reflect something of God's authority, his power, and his care for creation. They had a standard to live up to. The standard was God himself. God is righteous. He is just. No one can accuse him of any wrong. We read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God still wants us to be like himself. That's the purpose behind the law that he has given us. The ten words of the covenant, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, reveal something of God's righteousness. His standard is good and right. It's also an expression of his love for us. When we abide by his will, we learn by experience how good and loving he is. And by conforming to his will, we reflect something of who he is. And this also applies to the concept of holiness. God is holy. There's nothing dark or evil about him. And that's why the Catechism stresses that in the beginning, God created man good and in his image. And by the way, note once again that the word man here refers both to male and female. We read that in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve were both righteous and holy. Their characters had no hidden flaws. If we don't take this seriously, we will tend to blame God for their fall into sin. God created Adam and Eve to know him. The Catechism points out that they were capable of knowing God rightly. 
And that's an important observation. There was nothing wrong with their mind, heart, or will. God revealed himself to them through creation, but also through personal interaction with them. Their minds could understand him. Their hearts were also in tune with the will of God. They were able to love him in response. In the beginning, the human will was also not defective. They could obey him perfectly. Don't undermine this confession by trying to second-guess God. That's our human tendency. We see how man is and wonder why people have such wicked inclinations. Questions arise. If God knew in advance that Adam and Eve would sin, why didn't God prevent this? Why did he even give them a choice? It's common for questions like this to arise in catechism classes. Have you ever wondered how to give an answer? If your children would ask why God didn't create Adam and Eve without the ability to sin, how would you answer? Scripture teaches us that God wanted them to make a deliberate, conscious choice to remain in fellowship with him. The choice was not a difficult one. There were no hidden obstacles. They could choose to live with God in eternal blessedness or to die. And this means that in paradise, Adam and Eve were not immortal. They had natural, mortal bodies. They could die. God impressed this upon them by warning them that this could happen. God said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eternal life in fellowship with God was not something to take for granted. They received a promise of eternal life. One tree in the middle of the garden symbolized this. Next to that tree was another tree. Genesis 2 verse 9 informs us that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those two trees were visible reminders of the choice they had to make. The choice was between life or death. It was simple and profound. The presence of the tree of life gave Adam and Eve something to think about. They already had life. It was a life with God. However, the presence of the tree of life also showed them that God still had something special in store for them. What did it point to? It pointed to a future of unending fellowship with God. And there was only one way to enjoy fellowship with him. They had, to, <clears throat> they had to listen to God and respond to him with love and obedience. If they had continued along this path, they would have received the gift of eternal life. And God reveals how things were in the beginning for a reason. 
He makes it clear how things were before Adam and Eve fell into sin. And this highlights the depths to which they fell. Let's now focus on that. It's our second point. Hold on to what Scripture teaches us about the beginning of history. The evolution theory has influenced many people. As a result, they assume everything has come to be by chance. Things have been evolving, they say. There's a progression from simple to more complex forms of life. Do you know what the problem is adopting the evolution theory? Within such a framework, there's no room for a perfect beginning. Instead, things are supposed to be moving from imperfection toward a more perfect state. And this evolutionary perspective on the development of life contradicts what God teaches us in the book of Genesis. The Bible tells us that God created living beings according to their kinds. Variations can develop within those kinds, but a rabbit won't develop into a horse. Adam and Eve were not the results of a random process either. They resulted from God's special creative work. To disbelieve this will lead to the idea that somehow God made a very imperfect creation. And the choice is clear. Will we accept Genesis 1 as God's revelation of how creation started? Or will we choose to follow human ideas? Will we come to grips with what God teaches us about how our bond with him was in the beginning? Or will we reject it and deprive ourselves of the opportunity to gain a proper perspective on the world and on our place in it? When God had completed his work of creation, including man, we read that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Man's nature was perfect in the beginning. It's crucial to affirm this. If we don't, we will blame God for the way things are now. God gives us a straightforward account of creation to teach us where the responsibility lies. His command was simple enough. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You can read that in Genesis 2, verse 17. Now, those words were easy to understand. But Adam and Eve disobeyed. The choice was theirs. They made the wrong choice. They didn't have to do this. God warned them they would die if they would disobey him. They chose to disobey rather than to obey. And as a result, their nature became depraved. And the word depraved means perverted or corrupted. What was once straight became crooked. Their human nature, which was once good, became bad. The Canons of Dort summarize the effects of the call, pointing out in chapter 3, 4, article 1, that man brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility, 
and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in his will and heart, and impurity in all his affections. We speak of the doctrine of total depravity. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that people are as wicked as possible. The canons of Dort acknowledge in chapter 3, 4, article 4, that to be sure there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. Things could be worse than they are. Unbelievers can even put us to shame by decent things they say and do. Corruption has, however, affected every part of human life. In that sense, it's total. God created Adam and Eve in his image, and they were to reflect various characteristics of God. However, the fall into sin shattered the image like a sledgehammer can break a mirror into many shards. All you see now are remnants, tiny reminders of what was once perfectly good. Now we can no longer do by nature what is good in God's sight. By nature we even reject God's revelation about the depth of our fall. The human mind has become corrupt. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The reference to the natural person shows how people are. Sin has blinded them. It has impaired their thought processes. And there's also wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in man's will and heart. We read in Romans 8 verse 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the term flesh refers to how people are by nature before the Holy Spirit works in them. They can't please God and don't want to either. Our emotions or feelings have also become impure. Wrong desires arise. Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 5 that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Scripture shows us a very bleak picture, brothers and sisters. We need to take a good look at it. As Christians, we need continual reminders of what a difference God's grace makes. Otherwise, we may become arrogant, attributing to ourselves and our own abilities what comes from God. Accept what Scripture teaches us concerning our inability to please God in our own strength. And that will help us understand how much we need God's grace. It's also the way to learn to marvel at his forgiving love through Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches us to look to God in our misery. 
It reveals our glorious beginning and our sinful fall. It also points to our only hope. And this is our third point. We are all conceived and born in sin. And this rule has only had one exception. And that was Jesus Christ. Remember what the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary. We read about that in Luke 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus Christ was holy because he is the very Son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was also full of the Holy Spirit. And as our risen Savior, he works in our lives through the Holy Spirit. The results are very visible. The work of the Spirit impacts our minds. Speaking from a human perspective, it's normal for us to be cold and indifferent to the Word of God. However, the Holy Spirit changes this natural inclination. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Our hearts also change. Look at what happened to Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. We read in Acts 16, verse 14, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Spirit also overcomes the resistance of our wills. He convicts us of sin and brings about a desire to keep God's commandments. We read in Romans 8, the verses 12 to 14, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It should not surprise us when we witness evidence of sinful ignorance and unwillingness to walk in God's ways in our lives. That's our old human nature. Don't let it make you depressed, as if change is impossible. Instead, humble yourself before God and seek comfort and strength in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Remember what you learned to confess in Lord's Day 1. Jesus Christ works in us by his Holy Spirit. Remember those promising words that he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That refers to the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. We need that work of the Spirit in our lives. And don't wait for it passively. Don't just hope that the Spirit might work in your heart while fearing that God might pass you by. Jesus Christ himself assured his listeners, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those 
who ask him. Keep those words in mind. It's good to pray regularly for the forgiveness of your sins. But don't forget that you also need the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't just do this occasionally. Do it regularly. If Scripture has convinced you of your sins and misery, let it also teach you what the solution is. What did Paul and Silas say to the Philippian jailer in response to his question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus Christ gives us the solution to our sins and our sinfulness. Reflect on who he is. He is the very Son of God. He died on the cross to save lost sinners from damnation. Trust in him to save you from the punishment you deserve. Now remember what our Savior does now. He intercedes for us with our Heavenly Father. He also works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, renewing us to become more and more like him. Submit to him and let him guide you, beloved. After all, he is a living and active Savior. He will complete his work of salvation in the course of our lives, receiving us into glory. And knowing this should motivate us to live for him. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's now sing in response to the ministry of the word, hymn 28, the stanzas 5 and 6.